Martha Beck is a young, single mother of two. She lives in Florida, and she's very lonely. So lonely that her friends at work goad her into joining a Lonely Hearts Club. It's like a 1940s print version of online dating. In New York, a guy named Raymond Fernandez responds to her ad. Martha falls for his charms instantly. Soon enough, they partner up and start a life of crime together. They con other lonely women and take their money and ultimately their lives. Together, Ray and Martha seduce, steal, and slay. It's as though he is a creepier version of the legendary criminal Clyde Barrow, and she is his Bonnie. When a woman kills, we often try to make sense of what happened by assigning her a category, the jealous lover, the angel of death. But how well do these labels explain the crime? And how much do they simplify something much more complicated? My name is Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer captivated by stories of women who commit murder and by how society reacts when they do. In this episode, women who kill alongside their lovers. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. Don't forget to watch Why Women Kill, a new television series about three women driven to commit murder. Binge watch all episodes now, exclusively on CBS All Access. There's a fascinating subset of cases in which women have killed with the help of a partner— And for this episode, we're calling these women the Bonnies. That's a reference to the most famous woman to fit this archetype, Bonnie Parker. From 1931 to 1934, Bonnie and her boyfriend Clyde Barrow captivated the nation with their cross-country crime spree. They robbed banks, gas stations, and corner stores from Louisiana to Minnesota. Along the way, they killed 13 people. Admittedly, Bonnie herself never killed anyone, but she's remembered as a willing participant in the mayhem. Bonnie was portrayed as fierce and sexy, a bold anti-heroine, a woman who defied gender stereotypes and the law while still standing by her man. And next to her, guns blazing, Clyde, the faithful boyfriend, together until the very end. In fact, They became so famous that their names are used in headlines to this day. Pair accused of being modern Bonnie and Clyde are arrested. Italian Bonnie and Clyde arrested in Thailand. In Bonnie and Clyde style, Pair hits small stores. Bonnie and Clyde couple make getaway on moped. It's easy to see something darkly romantic about a couple pairing up against the world and heading out on a crime spree. But the way we label these couples grossly simplifies what's really happening in these relationships. So although they may be mythologized in popular culture and romanticized in some cases, people tend not to really understand the dynamics that are at play in terms of the partnership. This is Laura Richards. She's a criminal behavior analyst who's worked at Scotland Yard. It's the police force that oversees all of London. She says that, obviously, people can choose right from wrong all on their own. But a partner can warp how we make our decisions. 
if there's one of you and you have your own agency and you're strong in your own agency, that's one thing. But when you add in somebody else who, you know, perhaps you are impressed by, infatuated with, or you want to please in some way, then you might do things that on your own you probably wouldn't do. Strip away the romanticized portrayals and the ugly truth is clear. Most of the women in these teams, the Bonnies, are not equal partners in any way. In all couples who kill, there's always somebody who is in charge. Dr. Eric Hickey is a criminal psychologist and a professor of forensic psychology at Walden University. He says Martha had a strong, volatile personality. I think she was probably a little more outspoken and and loud and had more of a voice in the relationship. It wasn't like she was in charge of it. She was following him. She wanted to be accepted. The story of the Lonely Hearts Killers, as Raymond and Martha have been called, shows just how deviant these criminal relationships can get. In 1947, when Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez first meet, it's because he's trying to con her. Raymond is 33 years old and lives in New York. Martha is 27 and works in a hospital in Florida. Her two kids are from two different fathers, both of whom have already left her. She's a very lonely woman. She has been, you know, seeking a partner, seeking affection throughout her 20s. That's Peter Vronsky. He's a historian of serial homicide and the author of Female Serial Killers, How and Why Women Become Monsters. So from Florida, Martha joins a Lonely Hearts Club. One day, she gets this letter from an individual called Raymond Fernandez. They have this kind of whirlwind romance. She doesn't want him to leave, but he insists he's got to go back to New York. What Martha doesn't know is that Raymond is only here to try and scam her out of whatever money she has. It's what he does. He finds Lonely Hearts ads, targets the most vulnerable-sounding ones, charms them out of their money, and disappears. Except when he meets Martha, he realizes she doesn't have anything of value to steal, and so she's of no value to him. He returns home. But Martha is taken with him. She refuses to accept that this burgeoning romance is over. So in January of 1948, she heads to New York. There, Raymond realizes she does have value as a willing, lovesick accomplice, a partner in his crimes. There's only one problem. Well, two, actually. Martha has her children with her, a three- and a four-year-old. And Raymond kind of takes her in, but insists that uh, the children have to go. Martha doesn't hesitate. She takes her kids to a Salvation Army shelter and abandons them. Laura Richards, the criminal behavior analyst, says this alone proves that Martha will never be an equal partner to Raymond. Well, that tells me everything about his ability to manipulate her and control her to do anything that that he wants. And some people might say, well, that's unconditional love. But I would say that's total control, that dynamic. You know, it's a very concerning lack of power that she has in that relationship. To understand what drives a mother to abandon her children and devote herself completely to a man she barely knows you have to look into Martha's past. 
You have to really deep dive and, and do a psychological autopsy, as I call it, to understand someone's journey. Martha had a difficult childhood. She was chronically obese and started puberty prematurely. Even from a young age, Martha struggled to fit in. She's overweight, so she stands out. And, you know, young girls who are overweight and who are deemed to be unattractive are bullied and vilified. It's not just that. According to Martha, she was sexually assaulted by her brother when she was 10 years old. And she told her mother that her mother didn't believe her and actually beat her, physically beat her up, believing the brother and believing that Martha must have been responsible. When she was still a teen, Martha ran away from home. As she moved into adulthood, she became more and more promiscuous. Of course, when you flee home and you're a minor, you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to predatory individuals, and unfortunately, because your psychosexual social development has been interrupted, having sexual intercourse with someone is a way of validating yourself or being liked. Now, these facts don't fully explain why Martha became a killer. Many people have terrible childhoods and never grow up to be violent. But criminal psychologists say that those who do commit murder usually have a history similar to hers. Here's author Peter Vronsky. Martha Beck has a lot of precursors that we find both in male and in female serial killers. Common to serial killer childhoods, one is um, some kind of childhood trauma. You find that um, very frequently. As an adult, Martha could never sustain a healthy relationship with a man. Here's criminal behavior analyst Laura Richards again. You have a situation where somebody is not well-adjusted, well-attuned, and she desperately wants a relationship with someone to the point that she becomes like a domestic slave because she's so desperate for the relationship. Martha carries her traumatic history with her when she meets and falls for Raymond. The bullying, the sexual abuse, the mother who didn't believe her, the promiscuity being abandoned by the fathers of her children, the despair, the longing for any kind of relationship, all of this adds up to the complex psychological cocktail that characterized Martha Beck. When she meets Ray, a con man, no less, she sees him as the answer to all her loneliness and pain. Dr. Eric Hickey, the criminal psychologist, says that Martha's behavior, it fits a typical pattern for Bonnie's. Once they get into the, let's do whatever we want to do, then they kind of buy into it and then they become feeling a little more powerful. Martha kind of got to that point where she felt emboldened that nothing really fazed her about doing harm. Like many Bonnies, Martha is infatuated with her new partner. And Raymond finds himself enchanted with his new girlfriend, too. Their relationship blossoms, even as he pulls her into his life of crime and makes her an integral part of his scams. Author Peter Vronsky says they get to work quickly. Raymond Fernandez has revealed to her what he's been doing, these lonely heart scams. And she joins in with him, pretending to be his, uh, at first his sister-in-law, then his sister. So she's there in the future scams and victimization of women that Fernandez and she together will now conduct over the next year. Barely a month into their twisted relationship, they're scamming women together. 
It was easy, and it was bloodless. Raymond would charm them, Martha would win their confidence, they'd take the money and run. Then, in August of 1948, their game turns dark. A woman named Myrtle Young travels from Arkansas to meet Raymond. In very short order, Raymond and Myrtle are married. It's all part of the con. He begins to loot her assets. Thousands of dollars worth. And once we're done with her, she's given a sedative and put on a bus back to um, Arkansas. And apparently, she's overdosed. She's unconscious when she arrives in Arkansas. She dies the next day. It may have been accidental, but Myrtle is dead. It's their first killing. From there, things escalate. It's January of 1949, and Raymond has charmed his way into the heart and the checkbook of a woman named Janet Fay. She's in her 60s, older than his other targets. But she's wealthy. They get engaged. The con is proceeding as planned. Janet moves in with him and Martha in Long Island. Martha is still pretending she's his sister. One night, Janet is nervously babbling to Martha about the money she'd given Ray. She talks about her impending marriage, too. This annoys Martha. She gets jealous. Remember, Martha and Raymond are in a relationship, and she has a terrible history of failed ones, so she's going to protect this one. Ray hears the two women fighting. He tells them to be quiet. In response... Martha grabs a hammer. Martha beats Janet Fade with a hammer. Then Raymond finishes her off by strangling her, and they put the body in the trunk. Then they transfer the trunk to a house that they rent, and they bury it in the basement and cover it with cement. When it's all over, Martha says, Oh my God, darling, what have we done? Criminal behavior analyst Laura Richards says that Martha couldn't accept that Raymond might get intimate with any of his targets. And so she erupts and gets angry and she ends up killing someone because of that. And I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying that pattern is present. The murder of Janet Fay is a tipping point for the couple. Martha's affection for her man has become a liability. Author Peter Vronsky wonders how this story would be different without Martha's rage, the rage that made her pick up that hammer. It seems like these murders are being committed spontaneously. Who knows how long Raymond would have been able to manipulate Janet Faye and, and you know, loot her property and then get rid of her in some other way other than, than murder. Now, two people were dead, Janet Fay and Myrtle Young. And yet, the couple continued to thieve. They had chosen the criminal's life and would deal with the consequences together. That together-forever aspect of the relationship can sometimes compel a Bonnie to kill. They need validation from their partner. They want to prove they'll do anything for the other and protect them at all costs. I think she associated these killings with bringing her closer to Raymond, consolidating their relationships, kind of becomes their secret that they share. 
It's the intensity of these relationships that can blind these couples from seeing that they're actually spiraling into depravity. Dr. Eric Hickey sets it up. They see the darker side in one another. They, they see things that are evil. They see things that are exciting to them. They're not looking for a healthy, stable relationship. They're looking for someone who can join them in their darkness. It's not like you wake up one day and say, Tim, I'm going to become a serial killer or even a mass murderer. There's a process of going down this pathway. Sometimes it just takes that synergistic involvement with another person where you can bring out the worst in each other. Martha and Raymond's dark journey ends just weeks after the murder of Janet Fay. It's February 1949. Martha and Raymond are in Michigan now, working on Delphine Downing. She's a widow in her late 20s, and she has a two-year-old daughter. After a few weeks exchanging letters, Raymond comes to visit her. He brings his sister, Martha. They move in and share a simple suburban house. On February 26th, Martha is enraged again. Delphine and Ray are getting intimate. An argument erupts between the women— To calm Delphine down, they drug her, and she passes out. When they drug Delphine, her daughter witnesses this and is very upset to see her mother kind of in this inebriated drug state. And now Martha Beck loses her temper with the child and grabs her in the chokehold, leaving marks on her throat. The daughter is alive, but Raymond and Martha are panicking. And in that panic... Raymond takes Delphine's handgun and shoots Delphine in the head. Two days go by. The killers are still in Delphine's home. The baby won't eat and is constantly crying. Martha puts an end to that. They bury both bodies in the basement. They were caught like a lot of serial killers are caught. They got stupid. After murdering Delphine Downing and her daughter, Ray and Martha stayed in the home a little longer. And neighbors get suspicious. And so the neighbors call the police that there's this strange couple and the woman who lives there with her daughter doesn't seem to be uh, visible. And, And so police knock on the door and that's the end of that. On February 28th, 1949, they confessed on the spot. There's a 71-page confession where Martha Beck essentially pours out this story. They'd been scamming women for a little over a year. It was rumored that Martha and Raymond killed as many as 17 or even 20 people, but that was never proven. They only faced trial for the murder of Janet Fay, the woman Martha hit with a hammer in Long Island, New York. Prosecutors chose that one because New York State had the death penalty at the time. The couple was extradited from Michigan to New York. The courtroom was packed. It was filled mostly with women. Maybe they came to gawk at the murderess on the stand who was so horrific in some ways, but so relatable in others— A woman struggling to find love, wounded by men, mocked for her looks. The media was particularly cruel to her. That's what the press played up on her being this kind of fat whale-like monster. And, of course, her promiscuity. 
Then again, maybe these women came to listen to the juicy details of Martha and Ray's romance and sex life. It was very salacious, especially when they were reading the confession that listed the kind of sexual acts they did with each other. Crowds were fighting their way to get into the courtroom to witness that part of the testimony. And certainly Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez were this freaky couple. The jury found them both guilty of murder. On March 8, 1951, Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez were killed by electric chair. He was 36 years old. She was 30. Stories of Bonnie's speak to our fascination with rebels, tragic characters, and our belief that love conquers all. That's the flaw in the label, and the flaw in how we think of the original Bonnie Parker. Criminal behavior analyst Laura Richards says we misremember the real person behind the romantic legend. She wasn't a hardened criminal. He was. He was the one who brought her into that. So that was his story that she, unfortunately, got swept up in. Bonnie and Clyde died together in a police ambush, but their families insisted on burying them separately. Tens of thousands of people swarmed the funeral homes where their bodies were displayed. It was the end of what many saw as a tragic love story. That's how Martha Beck saw her own story, too. Her final statement before her death says it all. What does it matter who is to blame, she said. My story is a love story, but only those tortured with love can understand what I mean. In the history of the world, how many crimes have been attributed to love? Next time on Why Women Kill, the legend of the bloodthirsty babe, stories of women who kill for pleasure. I'm Tori Telfer. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. Have you checked out Why Women Kill, the TV series? It's the story of three women driven to kill, all living in the same house, but at different moments in history. It stars Lucy Liu, Jennifer Goodwin, and Kirby Howell-Baptiste. You can watch it online. Binge watch all episodes now exclusively on CBS All Access. Go check it out by signing up for a free trial at cbs.com slash whywomenkill.